when I was younger, when I was younger, uh, my mom and my grandma thought it'd be a great idea to send care packages to all my cousins who were in college. And you got to know this about my mom. She's literally the most hospitable person I've ever met in my entire life. And so she puts together a great care package. And so one of the things that she was going to add to these care packages, and especially one we were sending to my cousin who had gone to culinary arts school down in South Carolina, she was, uh, she was an amazing baker and cook. And so my mom was like, oh, let's make her some cookies with a special recipe and stuff like that. And so we're putting together everything like that. And this is a great idea, a great finishing touch to a care package is homemade chocolate chip cookies, right? Except when you forget they're in the oven. And by the time we had identified the crispy smell coming from the kitchen, it was a little too late, okay? And so we thought everything was absolutely disaster and everything was ruined, except I saw this light bulb go off over my mom's head, and it was a pure stroke of genius. I mean, when it comes to salvaging food, this was one of the most brilliant things I'd ever heard of in my entire life, okay? She took the <laughs> what were supposed to be chocolate chip cookies out of the, out of the oven, and Instead of calling them chocolate chip cookies, we cut them into rectangles and dipped them into melted chocolate, and voila, you have fudge dip biscotti. <laughs> right? Hold on, hold on. And so we literally, we sent them in the care package as fudge dip biscotti. She got them. She's in culinary school. She didn't even know. She thought they were the most amazing, creative thing you could ever put in a care package, and, and it was awesome. We never even mentioned it. We just was like, enjoy your biscotti. And uh, it was such a pure stroke of genius. In fact, it was quite hilarious. But the truth of the matter is, all of us have this ideal recipe in our heads of how life is supposed to turn out, right? How our lives are supposed to look. And at some point or another, all of us face a crisis. At some point, we all have something that challenges the idea of what our life was supposed to be like, of what other people were supposed to be like, of what this ideal that we held. And, and more often than not, the problem that challenges that idea, the problem that, that causes you to question the perfect recipe of what life was supposed to be like, usually that's caused by another person. Like, what do you do when your perfectly put-together concept of life uh, it's supposed to go one way, but a problem arises causing it to go off course. What do you do when your perfect life turns into a perfect storm? What do you do when you had such high hopes, but this person just turns out to be such a huge headache? This is actually the scenario that the Apostle Paul found himself in when he was in a Roman prison awaiting trial eventually to be executed. Okay, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. He's writing to the church in Philippi. Remember, we covered that last week, a little bit of what the church in Philippi was like with Lydia, you know, the, the CEO of the fashion industry. You've got this little slave girl who's overpowered and used by, for profit by other men. You've got this Roman guard, this duty-bound, um, just show me how to do it. Say it like it is. I want to go home and just fulfill my duty. Like the, the early church in Philippi was a, a group of people who never would have come together other than the gospel united them. And Paul is writing a letter to them from prison in Rome. And he's in a scenario where other people 
are causing such problems for him. And this is, this is the scenario we, we find the Apostle Paul in. So if you have your Bible, um, I'd invite you to stand with me. We're going to read God's Word together. Um, Philippians chapter 1, and we're actually going to start in verse 12 and go all the way through verse 18. It goes like this. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives. As they preach about Christ, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. But that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. And so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to us, you would illuminate your divine utterance into our hearts and speak to us the words we need to hear. Lord, I, I know that you're using human instruments, a preacher, to deliver your word this morning. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks to each one exactly what we need to hear today. Amen. You can have a seat. As we're, as we're jumping into this, the text is revealing two counterintuitive means that God is using to promote his message, the message of Jesus. In, in these verses, we see how the message advances because of two things. Number one, because of problem circumstances. And number two, because of problem people. In verses 12 through 14, we're going to see, and we're going to unpack this in a moment, how the, the message, the gospel, advances because of problem circumstances. Like, not despite them, but because of them. And then in verse 15 through 18, Paul notices how the message is actually going forward even because of problem people. Paul discovered this life-changing truth. And this is, this is really the main point I want to ha uh, hammer home today. This is what Paul discovered, that when I'm in a mess, I'm given a choice to magnify the message and still rejoice. He found himself in a mess, but somehow, some way, Paul is still overflowing with joy. Why? Paul discovered something that we're going to unpack today. But it basically, you could sum it up with this. Like, when I'm in a mess, I'm given the choice to magnify the message and still rejoice. And so, I noticed this. As a, according to the text, Paul is saying... The gospel is advancing, not despite the problems I'm facing while in prison. I, he's saying it's, it's going forward because of this. Look at this, verse 12. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything has happened to me. He's talking about being in prison, the tortures he's experienced. Everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. How, <laughs> right? How is the gospel advancing because of the problems Paul has experienced? Because on face value, if you, if you ask me, suffering does not seem like a good advertisement for the gospel. 
That's not what they teach you in marketing school. Give them the most painful outcome, and maybe they'll buy something from you. And so Paul's like, no, no, this is one of the reasons the gospel is advancing. And I go, why? What is the thinking that leads him to say this? Why does he have such joy even in the middle of trials and painful circumstances? Because think about this. Paul has been 24-7, 365 days a year, chained to another Roman guard for two years. Almost the entire length of, of how much we've been talking about COVID, right? Um, like, it feels like a long time. And Paul is like, every single day, every single hour of the day, he is in chains, chained to another Roman guard. Now, the Roman guard, he gets to switch off every couple hours or so. But Paul, I mean, you just imagine the amount of pain that he's feeling. And he's also, he reveals in the previous text that he's been put in stocks, Okay. So when you would put somebody in stocks, in prison, the goal was not to just keep them there. The goal was to make them suffer. So they would actually contort somebody's body in a weird way and then put them in stocks and hold them in that position until they literally you know, were, were forming out of position. And, and their bones were, were disjoining and stuff like that. And so, so Paul has been literally tortured in a Roman prison for two years. And this is what Paul says. The gospel is going forward because of this. Why? Notice this. This is, this is the logical progression of thought that leads Paul to rejoicing. Number one, there's something that enables overflowing joy inside of him. The, the, the whole palace guard, verse 13, everybody around him is noticing this. That he's in chains because of Christ. There's something that is enabling overflowing joy in Paul. Which seems so unnatural and is extremely noticeable. You shouldn't be rejoicing, Paul. But this is what he's noticing. There's a joy that doesn't come from around him. He's tortured and imprisoned. There's a joy that doesn't come from inside of him. He's deprived of comfort, of safety, hope of release even. There was something inside him that did not come from around him or within him. It actually came from above him, right? He found a peace. He found a delight that was more durable than his precarious circumstance, which could have only come from Jesus who is greater than life and stronger than death. This is, beginning to, this is what people are beginning to notice in the life of Paul. There's something inside of him that's not natural. So if that's true, what becomes apparently obvious to everybody else is that Jesus is supremely valuable to him and thus worth being imprisoned for. And the longer this goes on, the more unnatural, more inhuman this becomes. This is not from you, Paul. Where is this coming from? If this is true, if Jesus is so supremely valuable and worth suffering for, this Jesus thing has to be real. There's no way you could keep this up. And if that's true, your sins can be forgiven. If that's true, God is for you. Even if life is against you. And, and therefore, God is greater than the harshest conditions this life can threaten. So if that's true, God is sovereign and therefore, glory is coming. When this overflowing joy that's unnatural sustains in the life of Paul and is, is, is apparent throughout his entire imprisonment, Paul's going, no, no, no. People aren't noticing that God is bad. People are noticing that this faith thing is real. And the outcome, the logical progression of this is that glory is coming. If God is sovereign, enabling me to suffer this way and strengthen me, and, and his faith is real, and, and therefore this Jesus thing is real, and therefore sins can be forgiven, and God is for you, 
And God is sovereign. He's greater than all the things that can happen in life. Glory must be on the other side of this. As God is in the middle of this, strengthening me all the way through. And so Paul is noticing something. And when I, when I think about it that way, verse 12 and verse 13, the imprisonment and tortures of Paul, begin to make verse 14 make a whole lot of sense. Notice this. He said, because of my imprisonment, believers are now gaining confidence and boldness to preach the message without fear. Why? Because they know glory is coming. Which sounds great in a logical syllogism, like I just laid out, but why doesn't that actually uh, reveal itself all the time in our lives? Well, why is this sometimes true, but not all the time true? Why do we rarely anticipate glory when we suffer? Why do we often miss out on this kind of joy when life really, really hurts? Here's why. I think we've bought into the delicious lie that this life is about us. And if it is, the things that happen to us that hurt mean this life is not good. And if that's, if that's true, if life's misfortunes mean that things are wrong, then I have less security and I cannot trust that tomorrow will be good. It's, it's a total mindset shift. If this life is about me and when life inevitably hurts... Therefore, I lose security, I lose hope, and this, this can't be good. If life is not about me, all of a sudden that frees me up to begin to discover joy even when life hurts. See, what happens around me, if this life is not about me, what happens around me can never take from me what God has already given to me, which is a savior to redeem and redefine me. It's a father to protect and provide for me. It's a, it's a, it's a spirit to sustain me and to strengthen me. If this life is not about me, actually when life hurts, I'm just given new opportunities to discover that. How on planet earth would I ever know the love and the grace and the patience of Jesus unless I'm put in a scenario that is not easy. I'm never going to discover patience or grace or forgiveness when nobody ever disappoints me. But the more I begin to do that, the more I begin to come, be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And I begin to have fellowship with him and his sufferings. I begin to understand him and know him and unite with him that much more. When this life is not about me, what happens around me can never take from me what God has already given to me. And I begin to know God more. So Paul is discovering this. Even at the hands of unbelieving people who don't care about my faith. My faith is being revealed. The gospel is being magnified. God is being glorified because of my chains. So that's the first thing that we notice, that, that Paul has unreasonable joy because of problem circumstances. But the next thing I think is even more difficult to navigate, Paul discovers joy as a result of problem people. Problem people. This hits a lot closer to home now. Notice this, verse 15. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They, they preach because they love me, for they know that I've been appointed to defend the good news. Those other people do not have pure motives. They preach about, as they preach about Christ, they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. And if you missed it, these are believers. These are, these are Christian preachers. 
who are intending to make Paul's chains more difficult. Notice this. He says, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. Some of who? Look back at verse 14. The end of verse 14, he says, most of the believers, most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. But some of them, some of the believers, are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry and selfish ambition, intending to make my chains worse. Apparently, what they were doing is they were preaching. Remember, this is in Rome. They're pre- the Roman Christians are preaching so obnoxiously on purpose with the express intent to annoy the Roman government and the Roman guards to the point of making Paul's chains worse. The guy who represents kind of the, the beginning of this Christian movement, the one who keeps going forward and can't shut him up and he, you can't lock him down. Like this guy, this Paul, who, who is un. Defeatable, so to speak. Right? This, this guy, he's, he's everywhere. He's going so many different places, spreading the message of Jesus. This is the representative of Christ in, so, in, in many ways. And this guy is the one who keeps getting more pain, more, more affliction. And so, so the Roman Christians are going like, yeah, let's make it worse. Why? Well, they're preaching out of jealousy and rivalry and selfish ambition it kind of reminds me, it kind of reminds me of the man who was stranded on a desert island for years. And he had to, he's the only one on the island and he had to find a way to survive by himself and sustain himself for years because no one ever came and found him. Until one day a search party showed up and they had finally found out where he was and they were amazed and how he was able to sustain himself for so long. And they were asking him, how did you do this? How did you stay so, um, so healthy and, and thriving here on this island for so long? And he says, well, let me show you around. He's like, he takes him over to one building and he says, this is the house that I built with my own two hands. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. You did all this by yourself? He's like, yeah. And he takes him over here and he says, man, this is, this is the church that I built with my own two hands. They're like, wow, this is beautiful. And then the search party notices a third building. And they say, well, what's that building over there? And he's like, well, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) I think the longer you go to church, unfortunately, the more you begin to understand that sentiment. But the history of the church is marked by a sovereign God who graciously works in and through sinful people. Right? Right? So every church has somebody in it or a group of somebodies in it to some degree or another who want uniformity with their way rather than unity with God's way. In fact, Jesus, this is the thing. Jesus says that his people, the the community of people who follow him will be marked by one thing, how they love each other. But unfortunately, one of the most obvious things I think today that unbelievers notice is how quick we are to fight with each other. In, in this previous paragraph, Paul finds unusual joy in problem circumstances, but perhaps even the greater challenge Paul shines a light on is the joy that he's able to find because of problem people. I think this is something that disillusions a lot of people about the church. Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. In fact, it literally just a couple weeks ago, I heard somebody tell me this. I thought that once I started following Jesus, everything would be a lot better for me. I thought Christians would be so wonderful all the time, but the people 
but people just used the Bible against me in so many ways that I didn't even realize were possible. See, I, this, this, is, this is the challenge that arises in this text. Is not, oh no, people who hate Jesus are causing me to suffer. The, the bigger challenge, I think, that arises in this text is Christian people causing other Christian people to suffer on purpose. We, we can't ignore the fact that we are all fallen, we're all sinful, we're all imperfect. And then what happens is we bring all of that into one place every week, sometimes multiple times a week. So how do you deal with other people, other Christians who are weird or irritable or just wrong or plain hurtful? How do you deal with that when you had such high hopes and then somebody turns out to be such a huge headache? I think Paul does three things, okay, that I want to help you with here. Paul does three things that help him to find joy even because of problem people. Okay, the first thing he does is he identifies the problem makers. Okay, identify the problem makers. Again, like I said, verse 14, most of the believers, and then in verse 15 he says, some of them are causing me tons of problems. He's talking about fellow believers who are trying on purpose to make his affliction in prison worse. Why does this happen? I think sometimes, I've heard this before. I don't know if you've ever said this. Man, we just need it. Our church needs to be more like the early church. Because we've heard talk like that, right? Um, here's the problem. There were sinners in the early church too, right? I mean, the, the history of the church is marked by sinful people being used by a sovereign God. Even in the Philippian church, even in the Roman church, the history of the church is God working through people who make a mess of his church. Why does God let this happen? Why, why do people, why do Jesus followers let this happen? Why, why do we see this over the canvas of the history of the church? I think the Puritan John Trapp said it really well. He says, the devil loves a fish in troubled waters. In other words, Satan loves to amplify any sort of conflict or disagreement that happens among us. So it's important to identify what these types of things become, okay? Paul notices four things. Number one, he notices um, that they were jealous. They were jealous. You ever saw someone else in life get their blessing from God, get their being used by God? You, you see, man, God's been blessing and working and, and speaking through somebody else. How come I don't seem to get that? And they, they begin to look at Paul with jealousy, and go, why not me? So, so be, the first thing that Paul's noticing is like, y'all are being jealous. It's not that God's working in me and not in you. You're just not noticing it. You just want what God's working in me. And the reality is sometimes we see what God's doing in somebody else's life. And we're like, if only. And God's like, if you only saw what I'm doing in your life, your story could be powerful. If you noticed all the glory that I've deposited into it. When people begin to see God working in you the way that works for you and the way that I've been working in you, and then you're not going to be jealous anymore. But when you're constantly focusing on somebody else's blessing, when you're constantly focusing on the way that God is working in or speaking to or using somebody else, my goodness, you're never going to notice the glory in your own story. They were jealous. 
The second thing Paul notices is their rivalry. I would even say argumentativeness, okay? They were argumentative. Do you know anybody who's known far more for what they're against than what they're for? That's rivalry. Are you known for what you're for or what you're against? Are you quick to take up arms when someone is wronged? Or are you quick to celebrate when somebody's right? You can do both, but more likely than not, somebody knows you for one or the other, not both. Are you known for your rivalry? This is the thing that Paul's noticing about these other Christians. They're jealous, they're argumentative, they're selfish. And, and this, is really, this is really interesting. I think this hits a lot closer to home. Um, selfish ambition, the word used there is the word philipsis. And that is a word, I'm sorry, that, that's the next word. Not, that's affliction, not philipsis. But the word translated selfish ambition comes from a political term. To describe a politician canvassing for political office by spreading negative messages about another opponent to make himself look good. Okay, this last presidential campaign... You know that thing that you were so sick of, of the one guy talking smack about the other guy, and the other guy talking, you know, poorly about this one guy, and they're spreading all kinds of lies about each other, and you're like, what's the truth? That's, that's selfish ambition. That's what Paul's talking about. These Christians were doing exactly that with him. They're on this, like, vendetta, this, this smear campaign to make Paul's reputation for the gospel seem poor. Put somebody else down so that I can look a little higher. So they're, they're known for being jealous, their rivalry, their selfish ambition, and finally, they were malicious. Okay? They're intending to add affliction to Paul's chains. Um, I read it here in the NLT. They want to make my chains more painful to me. You might also see that to increase my affliction, um, whatever that that phrase is, it comes from the Greek word philipsis. This is what I was referring to earlier. And that Greek word philipsis literally just means like friction, like a sandpaper. Just constantly rubbing up against it and making it worse for me and making it worse for me. And and Paul's like looking at his wrists, going like this is just, it keeps rubbing and keeps rubbing. And what you guys are doing, or I'm sorry, not you guys, Philippians, what the Roman Christians are doing is they're trying to make this kind of thing happen in my entire life. The affliction that I'm feeling, this rubbing back and forth, this, they're trying to increase the affliction in my life. They're trying to sabotage Paul's ministry momentum because they're jealous, they're argumentative, they're selfish, they're malicious. And Paul's going like, I need to identify this so that it, a, it doesn't take over my entire thought process. I know exactly what's happening. But then, therefore, I know how to respond in a gospel manner. Right? I think, though, it's incredibly discouraging when Christians attack other Christians or when Christian leaders attack, you know, degrade other Christian leaders. I've heard too many pastors try to make themselves sound correct by making somebody else sound incorrect. And it, it just... It reminds me, actually, of this comment aimed at Dallas Jenkins, the creator or the director of The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there's, a, there's a YouTube comment that posted on here during one of their live streams. He's like, Dallas, shut up. You are not the rock star. Jesus is. I've done my part along with everyone else, but you never shut up. 
Your never-ending big mouth ruins the whole thing for me. There's a Christian speaking to another Christian about a Jesus thing. Right? And I love his response. He's like, I tried to get Jesus to do the intros and the outros, but the live stream, uh, for the live stream, but he said the Wi-Fi sucks. That's, that's smooth. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, if you've been in church long enough, you've probably met the Tate family. Okay, you, you've got old man Dick Tate, who wants to run everything. You've got Uncle Rotate, who tries to change everything. Um, Sister Agitate, she stirs up plenty of trouble with help from her husband, Irritate. Whenever new initiatives are suggested, Hesitate and his wife, Vegetate, just want to wait till next year. Aunt Imitate is trying to be like everybody else, while Devastate is providing the voice of doom, and Potentate is always trying to be the one in charge. Oh, and of course, you can't forget the loner in the family, Amputate, who's completely cut himself off from every church. If you've been in church long enough, you've probably met somebody in the Tate family. If you haven't, that's amazing. That's so cool, unless you're looking at them in the mirror. What do you do? What do you do when these people are in your church or they show up in your community? Here's what Paul does. He moves on. He pivots. This is This is crucial. I actually have a book at home called The Big Butts of the Bible, okay? Crucial contrastive conjunction. Uh, This is true, but this is true. You know what I mean? And so Paul is doing this. He says, it's true some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but, that's a big but, others preach Christ with pure motives. He's actively turning his attention to the pure motives. So number one, identify the problem makers. Number two, dignify the pure motives. There's good that Paul is doing, or that God is doing in the middle of this circumstance, and Paul notices it. He sees it. Certainly, in every group, there's dictate and agitate and imitate and devastate, but that's not everyone in the church. In fact, most churches have few of them, and most churches also have plenty of these. Advocate and celebrate And when you meet them, you want to dignify their efforts and and amplify their voices in your life and in the church. These are the people that you you form tight alliances with, you join life groups with, you encourage, and you go serve with. You do, yes, you love everybody, but there are some people that you make extra effort to align with in life. Find those people who are actively loving like Jesus and diligently building their life around him. Find those people and run with them. If you see God's work in somebody's life, go where God is working. Encourage that person. Support that person. Eventually, do life with that person. You, you, you want to align yourself with those people. See, because like, here's, here's how you notice this. When man's working for his own gain... And his own reputation, disintegration usually is in the wake. Things falling apart. Things fighting. Selfish ambition. But when God is present and active in somebody's life, and a person's building their around, uh, life around him, you know what's in the wake of that person? Joy. You ever been around somebody who just absolutely loves Jesus and loves everybody else the way Jesus loves them? <laughs> you want to be around those people. There's joy! It's not that this person is devoid of problems, but God is working in their life, and joy is the wake they leave behind. 
Empower these people. Partner with these people. Encourage these people. Sacrifice for these people. Dignify these people. The people with pure motives. This is what Paul's doing here. So identify the problem makers. Dignify the pure motives. But number three, I think the third part of this strategy is the best part. Number three, magnify the powerful message. Magnify the powerful message. But Paul says, verse 18, that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way, and so I rejoice. This is huge. How many of you could say, you created a problem, but I'm throwing a party? You wanted to hurt me and end me, but you can't stop me because Jesus is what my life revolves around. So go ahead, take me out, knock me down, push me over, cut me off. My life still has purpose because Jesus is what my life is about. His message advancing forward is what my life's purpose is. You can't knock me down. You can never take me out of me. What God has put in me, I still have the power to turn this problem into a party because I've got joy magnify the powerful message when your life is defined by the gospel. Nothing can steal your joy. You've got to shift from making his life about you to having eternity in view. That for all of eternity, this isn't going to be about me. In fact, if you think heaven is about you, you're really not going to like it. This is the point that Paul's making when I'm in a mess. I'm given the choice to magnify the message and still rejoice. It's amazing how God can use the messes we end up in and the pain we experience as a megaphone to the listening world. That God speaks in our blessings but he shouts in our pain. If you've ever gone through intense pain, you know this. Like the mo- that it, this is when people tend to gravitate their attention towards you. Pay a little bit more attention. And throughout the history of the church, it's, it's often when Christians face the hardest challenges and the toughest opposition that the, the, the gospel, the light of God through the message of Jesus shines even brighter into the darkness. Why? Because there's this moment as a believer is receiving suffering and pain and hurt from this world or even from other Christians and still finds joy. They're able to magnify the message. If, if the believer is receiving pain, still chooses to glorify Jesus and find joy in his kingdom moving forward, in his purposes being accomplished, there are more ears and more hearts that are soft in that moment. So when a believer does this in the middle of pain, this is what the world sees. That there's something that enables unnatural joy. There's something invisible inside that does not come from around or comes from within. It comes from above. You demonstrate peace and an inner delight that's more durable than your precarious circumstances. Which can only point to Jesus, who's stronger than death and greater than life. So, so when the world sees this, they get the picture that Jesus is infinitely more valuable than all the wealth and the power and the affirmation that this world can provide. Think about this. This is who Paul's writing to. Think about how Lydia would have received this message. 
The, this Asian woman who has homes in two different continents, who's powerful, who's rich, who's got her life going for her. She's a CEO in a fashion world. Like, all attention is on Lydia. And she receives this message that Christ is more valuable than all the wealth and the comfort this world can offer you. Think about the poor slave girl who is, who is destitute, used for profit by other people, controlled by demonic powers. Think, think about how she receives this message that in Christ there's more power available to you than any deviated source you can possibly run to. That he's more valuable, he's more powerful, he's stronger. Th think about the, the Roman guard who receives this message, who's, who's duty-bound. Just say it like it is, show me how it's done. There is, in Christ, there is a powerful example the world sees of what real faith that's grittier than suffering. That's more glorious than anything this life can offer. That will fulfill the deepest longing of your soul and, and affirm who you are. And bring you to glory. Roman guard, here's how it is. Look in the life of Paul. Let me, let me show you what it's like. It's stronger and tougher than even the worst kind of death that you've inflicted on anybody in your life as a Roman officer. And Paul goes, no, no, no. I find joy in this. This faith is real. This Jesus thing is real. And when people see this in Paul's life, when people see this in your life, you know the message is? Sins can be forgiven. This Jesus thing is real. Sins can be forgiven. And if that's true, God is for you. God is not against you. Even when life hurts, there is a God who is offering his arm of forgiveness and salvation and hope and peace because you showed this Jesus thing to be real. God is for me. He's not against me. And he's stronger than the harshest things that this life can threaten me with. So God is sovereign. And if that's true, glory is coming. Suffering does not show the world a God who is woefully vindictive. When a Christian goes through suffering and finds joy, it shows the world a God who is wonderfully valuable. So when you're in a mess, you're given a choice. To magnify the message and still rejoice. Suffering doesn't accuse the ruthlessness of God to his people. Suffering amplifies the realness of God through his people. This is what it means. This is what it means to turn problems into parties. To find joy when life hurts. This is what it means to be elevated above the unpredictable and painful circumstances of life. To find joy that is more than a feeling. Now, you may not be currently suffering. And, and even if you are, what I want to do is set you, set you up with a few ways that next time you find a problem circumstance or you encounter a problem person, how to find joy in the midst of this. To rejoice in what God is doing. Okay, there's three things I want to give you and then I'll be done. Number one is turn your life over to Jesus. This, this is actually where unshakable joy finds its foundation. Is a God 
who has demonstrated that he is for you and he is opening his arms to rescue you and to redeem you and to give you the hope of eternity. God is for you. And when you turn your life over to Jesus, when you give your heart fully to him, that is the beginning point of unshakable joy. And if, you, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, completely given your whole life to him, I want to give you that opportunity right now. The Bible makes it pretty clear, almost as simple as A, B, C. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus, that, that he died on the cross in your place to forgive you of your sin, and he rose again from the dead to give you new life. He did this for you, to bring you into relationship with God. But even more than that, the Bible continues to go on to say that in order to completely receive God's salvation, you have to confess him as Lord. He, he is the one who's in charge of your life. You give your life over to him. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Confess him as Lord. When you turn your life over to Jesus, that is the beginning point of finding unshakable joy. If you've never done that and you're watching online, would encourage you. There's a button that's going to pop up here that says, I want to give my life to Christ. There are people waiting by to pray with you, to, to talk with you. We'd, we'd encourage you. If, if that's you, we'd love to do that. If you're here with us this morning, man, I'd love to chat with you afterwards about what that would look like to turn your life over to Jesus. That is the beginning point of unshakable joy. But the second thing I want to offer you is to turn, not only turn your life over to Jesus, but turn from your selfishness. Turn from your selfishness. Guys, when jealousy or rivalry or selfish ambition is showing up in your life, you're hurting yourself. Like God is working in your life to spite you, not because of you. When you are living about you, life is about you. And other people are in the way. You're jealous of what God's doing. It's, it's not about you. It's about him. But when you've given up your selfish ambition and instead embrace your divine purpose, that's when you're going to truly discover divine joy. Turn, turn your life over to Jesus. Turn from your selfishness. And maybe today, you need to have a real hard conversation with Jesus. To say, I've been living for me. I need to give up my selfish ways. God, I give myself completely to you. Show me what it looks like to take those steps to, to totally live only for you. And, and number three, and this is the last thing, is to turn your problems into parties. Okay, turn your life over to Jesus. Turn from your selfishness. And finally, turn your problems in your par into parties. When you're totally committed to Jesus and his message and your life is revolving around him, you're going to be able to start identifying the problem makers and move on from these people. Dignifying the pure motives and, and partner with these people. And finally, magnify the powerful message. And you promote it in every area of your life. See, especially when you're hurting, you may be the vehicle through which a watching world sees a faith that is real and a God that is more powerful and more valuable than all the comforts that this world can offer. Don't waste your season of pain. It may be precisely that God is telling a greater story with you. So as you celebrate the glory of God at work in every scenario, there's this overflowing joy in your life that is gravitational. It pulls others closer to the love and the glory of God. And you can't keep this party to yourself that when you choose joy despite problem circumstances and problem people, when life is hurting you and you turn your problems into parties, God is glorified. He's glorified in your life 
He's glorified around your life. And there's something that draws people into the love and the glory of God. When you're in a mess, here's the truth. That you're given a choice to magnify the message and still rejoice. You can find joy even when life hurts. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we turn to you, even in our pain, I pray that you would magnify your love and your glory in our lives. I pray that we would be the vehicle through which a watching world sees a God who is valuable more than anything that this life can offer. God, please use us for your glory. Amen.